What a great thing to proclaim that his love defends us, that whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, we know he goes before us and we can stand secure in him. This um, last Sunday in the Bay Area of San Francisco, Oakland, there was an interesting incident that you may have heard about or watched and it was around the Oakland Raiders game. People were crowded in the subway system there. And, uh, and then uh, there was a man who was intoxicated going along, walking along uh, the edge of the subway. And he found himself in, a, in an interesting situation. Uh, and if you haven't seen this video that has been sort of viral, uh, let me show it to you. But you need to pay attention because it's a 15-second video. And, uh, and, you know, surveillance cameras are, don't have high resolution. But see if you can pick up what happens there at the subway station, the Bay Area. Pretty close call, isn't it? Uh, John O'Connor, a man who has been working with the transit system for 24 years, noticed uh, that this uh, intoxicated man had fallen as the train was coming and he reached quickly to pick him up and picked him up just in the nick of time. I'm uh, wondering, if John O'Connor, when he got up that morning, got ready to go to work, if he realized that he was gonna save a life. Probably not. He probably didn't think that. But when the opportunity came, he was ready to act swiftly. He had the right attitude and he had the right disposition. You know, when you get up in the morning and, and you get ready to go to work or you do your work at home or you do your retirement uh, routine, you probably don't get up thinking, today I'm going to save a life, unless you work in ER or you're a first responder. But, but everything that you do from Monday through Saturday is important, and it makes a huge difference. In fact, <clears throat> I submit to you that your work and your leisure are both spiritual. Today we, we are coming to a message that I've entitled a spiritual workplace. We continue in our study on the book of Ephesians and we come to an interesting text that may not, be, uh, may not seem relevant to us in the 21st century, but I, I, I ask you to, to bear with us, to stay with me, whether you're a slave or a master, whether you're an employee or a boss, whether you're a stay-home mom or a retired person, I believe God has something to say to you today. So stay with us as we go to our text in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. We've been going portion by portion, beginning with Ephesians 1, and, uh, and we've been working through the letter, and we're getting close to the end. We have a couple more Sundays left, but today we come to this portion in the middle of the sixth chapter of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter six, verses five through nine. And it reads like this. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and 
with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eyes on you, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. It seems strange to us in the 21st century setting to read a Bible passage that has instructions for slaves and for masters. And we think, well, what is the relevance of that to us today? We don't have slaves and we don't own slaves. So uh, is, is the Bible endorsing slavery? What, what is the takeaway for us today? Well, uh, let me suggest to you that the primary application for us today has to do with an attitude, has to do with our attitude about what happens in our everyday life, in our Monday through Saturday. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. First of all, it has to do with an attitude of submission. I believe that freedom starts in the heart. The writer of Ephesians has been telling us about the great salvation that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he moves from laying the doctrinal groundwork and starts building on the ethical implications on the way that we ought to live because of who we are, he calls us to be spirit-filled. And it is out of that spirit-filled condition that we can carry out these things. It is when we are spirit-filled that we can obey these words. 5.18 of Ephesians, Paul says, be filled with the spirit. And the contrast is being drunk on wine. Now, when you're drunk on wine, your demeanor changes, your attitude changes. And when you're filled with the spirit, your demeanor changes, your attitude changes. So Paul is saying, be filled with the Spirit in such a way that it will show in your actions, but first in your attitude. Now, the discussion of slavery as a social issue is important. But the point of this passage is not to address slavery as an institution, but to speak to individual believers who in the first century Greco-Roman world found themselves in different positions, in different roles, in different conditions. Some had come to Christ and they were slaves. Others had come to Christ and they were masters. So whether they were, uh, whatever their condition or their role was, Paul is saying, this is how you ought to live from now on. This entire passage and the context is called the household code. Uh, it, it is what Paul says ought to happen in an extended family of the first century, the oikos, if you would. And in that household code, there are instructions for wives and husbands. There are instructions for children and parents. And then we come to the instructions for slaves and masters. But the one thing that we ought to notice that encompasses all of these relationships in the household, in the oikos, is what we see in verse 21 of chapter 5, 
where the, the commandment, the admonition is to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submission is the key to a spiritual household. Submission is the key to a spirit-filled attitude. Submission is the key to carry on our everyday lives because freedom starts in the heart. Now, you may say, well, submission and freedom are contradictory. Well, if you think freedom is doing whatever you want without anybody telling you anything to do and without being accountable to anybody, then I can see why you have a problem. But those of us that understand the gospel, those of us that seek to be spirit-filled, understand that submission is freedom because it is a voluntary act of the will. See, it is the choice that we make before someone forces it on us. And that is why it's freedom to us. Freedom from oppressive social structures is important. We should speak to that. We should speak against social injustice. But we also ought to remember that freedom does not begin at the societal level. Freedom does not begin at the government level. You know, we've abolished slavery over 150 years ago. It's been over 50 years since the civil rights movement came and went, and we still have issues today. And that is because there are some things you cannot fix by changing a law or writing a law or removing a law. There are some things that need to be changed in the heart. There are some things that need to happen inside the person. That doesn't mean we don't care about the other. That doesn't mean we don't address society and government. It just means that the most fundamental change needs to happen in the heart of the person. Freedom begins in the heart. Now, slavery in the first century Greco-Roman world was very different from the kind of slavery that characterized the United States before the Civil War. For example, slaves of Greek owners could own property and they could have work outside of the duties that their master required of them. Some slave occupations included being uh, the stewards or the managers of the household, or you could be a, a physician or a teacher or an accountant or a farm worker. Uh, there were different occupations. One third of the Greco-Roman world was considered slave. And some slaves enjoyed more favorable living conditions than many free people. In fact, uh, being in a household with a master was a sense of security and stability to the, to the extent that some people sold themselves into slavery in order to have enough provision and even have social mobility because after a certain amount of years, they were freed. They, they, they could go on and be on their own. But even so, with these differences between slavery in the Bible and slavery in the United States, the writer doesn't necessarily condone slavery here. He's addressing individual believers and calling them to live in such a way that it honors Christ, to live a life worthy of their calling. In fact, Paul refers to slaves in other, in other letters as full members of the church, not as, as second-class citizens, not as inferior members of the church, but as full participants of the household of God because their submission in Christ had made them free. Listen, for example, to what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 21 and 22. 
he's writing to them and he says, were you a slave when you were called? In other words, were you a slave when you became a Christian? Don't let it trouble you. Although, if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. In other words, what Paul is saying here is your outward, your external position in the world is not as important as your internal relationship with Christ. And then Galatians 3.28 says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying, in the church of Jesus Christ, at the, at the foot of the crowds, the ground is level. There is no Jew or Gentile. There, there's no woman or man. There's no slave or free, for we are all one in Christ. We, we've all received the same grace. We've all been loved by the same God. We've all been rescued by the same Savior. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, for we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. And then you remember that occasion when Paul writes to Philemon because uh, his slave Onesimus uh, was away from him. And as Onesimus was going to go back to Philemon's house, he was a little concerned that he might be in trouble. And so Paul advocates for Onesimus and he tells Philemon, listen, you need to treat him as more than a slave. Philemon 16 says, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. He's very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. Paul says, you know, it's those external uh, titles are not as important as the fact that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. What is remarkable about the Ephesians passage is that, that the writer addresses slaves directly. He doesn't say, masters, make sure that your slaves do these things. In fact, in every set of instructions, he addresses the one who might have been considered subordinate first. Did you notice that? He talks to wives first before husbands. He doesn't say, husbands, I'm going to make you responsible for the behavior of your wives. He addresses children before he addresses parents. He doesn't say to parents, parents, you're responsible for the behavior of your children. He addresses slaves before he addresses masters. He doesn't say to masters, I'm going to make you responsible for the behavior of your slaves. You see, what Paul is saying is every individual, regardless of their state or position, is a morally responsible person before the Lord. They are accountable, first and foremost, to God. Whether wives or husbands, children or parents, slaves or masters, we are all responsible for our own behavior. And that responsibility begins in the heart. It begins with an attitude. Your freedom starts in your heart. Freedom is not removing people whom, to whom you're accountable, but it is an attitude that relates to the Lord. Secondly, it is an attitude of reverence for something that is sacred. Our mission field starts at work. The most immediate application of this passage to you and me in the 21st century is our work relationships. 
The instruction for the slaves can be applied to employees. The instruction for the masters can be applied to supervisors or business owners. And the Bible tells us here that our work relationships are sacred. You see, in Christ, your marriage relationship is sacred. In Christ, your home life as parents and children is sacred. In Christ, your work relationship is sacred. In Christ, your leisure, your recreation time, your rest time is sacred. The attitude that we ought to have is one of respect and sincerity toward our boss. The same respect that we would have for Christ, we should have for our boss. So teacher, have an attitude toward your principal as you would have to Christ. So law enforcement officer, have an attitude toward the chief as you would have to Christ. Nurse, have an attitude toward the head nurse or the physicians as you would have to Christ. That's what the Bible is teaching us here. Oh, pastor, you don't understand. You've not met my boss. She is mean. He is horrible. He's unfair. Well, I may not, I may not know your boss, but, but I know this, that, that Christ, that God doesn't call us to do what we're supposed to do depending on whether our boss is nice or not. What, what our responsibility is doesn't depend on what others do. We do what we do, not because people are nice to us or not, because at the end of the day, it's not about our boss, it's not about our employee, it's not about us even, it is about Jesus Christ, who makes what we do sacred. The Christ follower has one Lord, and his name is Jesus. So everything that we do, we do it for him. Our earthly bosses may or may not be fair, but our heavenly master is fair. Our, our earthly masters may not see what we do that goes above and beyond the call of duty, but our heavenly master does, and he will reward us. Our earthly masters may, may not see when others cheat and, and when others get away with stuff, but, but the heavenly master does. Eugene Peterson translates this passage in Ephesians 6. He says, servants, respectfully obey your earthly masters, but always with an eye to obeying the real master, Christ. Don't just do what you have to do to get by, but work heartily as Christ's servants doing what God wants you to do. And work with a smile on your face. Always keeping in mind that no matter who happens to be given the orders, you're really serving God. Good work will get you pay from the master, regardless of whether you are slave or free. Whether you're a carpenter or a doctor, whether you're an engineer or a truck driver, whether you're a banker or a stay-home mom, whether you're a cook or an attorney, your work is an extension of the kingdom of God. Is Christ your king? Does Christ live in your heart? Did you pray when you trusted Christ? Did you say, I want you to be Lord of my life? Well, that means that he's Lord of your work. He's Lord of your rest. He's Lord of your recreation. He's Lord when you show up at work. He's Lord when you're doing the household church, when you're mowing the lawn. He's Lord on the golf course. He's, he's Lord at the tennis court. He's Lord at your dominoes table. He's Lord at the swimming pool. It, is he Lord of all? 
If he's Lord of all, then when you show up to work, then the kingdom of God goes with you. I was watching a morning show the other day and it was talking about living longer and healthier and about people who, who continue to live long and what, what characterizes their long and healthy lives. And something caught my attention that I thought was interesting. And, and the, the person who was speaking says, most Americans are not happy in their jobs. I thought that was interesting. He said, so, so if you wanna live longer, you need to find purpose in your life. And if you don't find that purpose in your job, then you need to find that purpose elsewhere. And I thought, what if, what if we understood that God's purpose can be lived out through our jobs? What if we understood that God's purpose could live, be lived out through our leisure time? What if we understood that when we show up, wherever we show up on Monday morning, the kingdom of God shows up too? It would be different. The attitude would be different. The outcome would be different. We have a, a full-time student at UTRGV who has a part-time job teaching uh, English to Chinese families. And when she does that, she does a good job and she also shares the gospel. Her name is Ale. And Ale has been sharing the gospel with Chinese families. And, and a week and a half ago, one of these families that's getting ready to go back to China said, showed up here at church and said, Ale has been talking to us about Jesus Christ. And we want to know him. We want to trust him before we go back to China. We don't know if there's a church back home. We don't know of any Christians back home. But before we go back there, we want to trust him. So they came and they met with Ali and Pastor Chad and both mom and daughter prayed to trust Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And now they're getting ready for baptism. And China is going to be different because a student in the RGV understood that when she shows up to campus and when she shows up to work, she's extending the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is being extended indeed. Christian supervisors and business owners recognize the Lordship of Christ over their employees, over their business, over themselves. At the end of the day, whether you're a manager or a CEO, whether you're the president of a bank or the chief of staff, whether you're a pastor or whether you're a supervisor, at the end of the day, we have to remember that we are all servants that there's only one Lord and we are managers. We're simply administrators. We've been entrusted with a task, a task for a temporary time. The message says in Ephesians 6, 9, Master, Masters, it's the same with you. No abuse, please, and no threats. You and your servants are both under the same master in heaven. He makes no distinction between you and them. Both employees and supervisors are accountable to the master in heaven. So do what you do with an attitude of reverence. Your work is sacred. Your work is a mission field. If you're a believer, if you're a follower of Christ, you are a missionary. And your workplace is your mission field. Your leisure place, the athletic club, is your mission field. Your neighbors are your mission field. Your networking of people whom you work out with is your mission field. And thirdly, 
Our attitude should be one of sonship. Our identity starts with the Lord. A spirit-filled attitude includes submission. A spirit-filled attitude includes reverence for the sacredness of what we do every day. And a spirit-filled attitude includes sonship. The letter to the Ephesians begins by reminding Christians of who they are in Christ. If you, if you go to, to Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, you'll see the list there of, of who we are in Christ. And why is it important that, that Paul would set that up at the beginning of the letter? Because who we are dictates what we do. Who we are sets the pace for our attitude and for the outcome. So I ask you today, who are you? What is your identity? If, if a stranger were to come up to you and say, who are you? What's the first thing you would say? I, I like this clip from, from the movie Overcomer. Watch. John. If I asked you who you are, what's the first thing that comes to mind? I'm a basketball coach. And if that's stripped away? Well, I'm also a history teacher. Okay. We take that away. Who are you? Well, I'm a husband. I'm a father. And God forbid that should ever change. But if it does, who are you? I don't understand this game. It's not a game, man. Who are you? Um, I'm a white American male. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> Is there anything else? Well, I'm a Christian. And what's that mean? It means follower of Christ. And how important is that? It's very important. Interesting. Hi, so far down your list. Okay, wait a minute. I could have easily said Christian first. Hey, yeah, but you didn't. Look, John. Your identity will be tied to whatever you give your heart to. Doesn't sound like the Lord asked first place. You're calling me a bad Christian? Let me be a little direct. Last time you were here, you said you'd pray for me. Did you? No. No. For someone who knows the Lord, you're acting like somebody who doesn't, which makes me wonder. What have you allowed to define you. When you lost your team, it didn't just disappoint you, it devastated you. Something or someone will have first place in your heart. But when you find your identity in the one who created you, Change your whole perspective. 
Who are you? What's your identity? When Paul writes to the Ephesians, to the believers in Asia Minor, he tells them who they are. He says, you are God's holy people. That's who you are. You're blessed in the heavenly realms. That's who you are. You're chosen in Christ. That's who you are. You're predestined for adoption to sonship. That's who you are. You're redeemed by his blood. That's who you are. You're chosen for the praise of his glory. That's who you are. You're included in Christ. That's who you are. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit. That's who you are. You're God's possession. That's who you are. You're made alive with Christ. That's who you are. You're saved by grace. That's who you are. You're God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus. That's who you are. You're brought near by the blood of Christ. That's who you are. You're a new humanity. That's who you are. You're fellow citizens with God's people. That's who you are. You're members of God's household. That's who you are. You're the holy temple where God dwells. That's who you are. That's your identity. That's my identity. I am more than my job. I am more than what I do. You are more than what you do. You are more than your position at work. You are more than your role at home. You are more than your place in society. You are a child of the king. And if God has adopted us into sonship, then we need to adopt an attitude of sonship. To slaves, he says, you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. To masters, he says, you know that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. In other words, God doesn't see whether, there are, whether you're a slave or a master, whether you're the employee or the supervisor, whether you're a field worker or a CEO, when you get to heaven, there's not gonna be a door, a sign on your door that says he was the president of the bank or he was a counselor at school or, or she was, that's not gonna be there. This is just a temporary assignment and it ought not to define you. That's not your identity, that's not my identity. Your work is important because it is an extension of the kingdom of God. But your position at work does not define who you are. Your identity starts with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that makes all the difference in the world. It makes a difference in the world because if you, if you serve Christ, then what you do, you will do with excellence. Whether you're an employee or a supervisor, whether you work at home or whether you're retired, you will do it well because you're doing it for God. But it also means that whether you succeed or you fail, you're okay because your, your relationship with God doesn't change. If you have a bad day at work or if you have a good day at work, that doesn't define you. If people like you or don't like you, if people understand you or don't understand you, it doesn't really matter because that's not who you are. Who you are is a child of the king. And that's where you rest. That's where you're secure. We were talking to the men this weekend in the men's conference here at Calvary. And, and we were talking to them about how to live out of that identity. How to live out of the identity where we are loved by God and we love God. And, and our life 
uh, is shaped around that identity. And we offered a tool to them called the rule of life. And, and, and there's a diagram that, that shows uh, that at the very center is this love of God, that we are loved and that we love him above all things. And then around that, then, then we uh, plan our prayer life, our abiding, our fellowship with him. And we plan our rest. Rest is important to God. It's in the Ten Commandments, by the way. God rested on the seventh day. And if God rested, then who do you think you are to be able to go without it? And then there's our relationships. We are made for relationships. We're made in the image of God. And, and those are important. And then there's our work. Our work is important, but it's not at the center of our lives. There will come a day when, when you'll change jobs, you'll change positions. You might get laid off. You might retire. And at the end of it all, who are you? You are one who is loved by God. And so let that be at the center of your life now and every day. Treat people at work with the same attitude as you would Christ. Remember that they are accountable to him, that he looks out for them, that he's their Lord and their advocate and their defender, and that you also will be accountable to him. There's a story about a king in ancient times who placed a boulder on a road, right in the middle of the road, he put a huge rock and then he hid in the woods to watch what people would do. And travelers, as they would come up to this rock, some of the rich merchants that would come would look at the rock sort of uh, in amazement and they would just go around it. And there would come people who worked at the king's court that didn't know that the king had put the rock there. And they would go around the rock and they would complain that the king should keep the roads clearer, clearer of debris and rocks. And, and so came important people in society, some indifferent, some complaining. And then came this peasant with his basket of vegetables. And when he saw the rock, he put the basket down. And then he began to try and move that boulder. And it was hard, but he continued to do it and slowly he made progress until with much effort and after much time, he was able to get the rock out of the way for others. And when he came back to pick up his basket of vegetables, he noticed that where the boulder had been, there was a purse filled with gold coins and a note inside from the king that said these coins belong to the one who took the time to remove the obstacle. This week, there will be some people that will be showing up at work and they will be indifferent about what goes around them and the king will be watching. And there'll be some people who will show up at work and they'll complain. They'll complain about everything. They'll complain about others, what should be and what should have been. And the king will be watching. And then there will be some people who will show up at work, who will show up where they volunteer, who will show up at their duty, and they will understand that they are there to remove obstacles for the king so that the kingdom of God can go through. 
And the king will be watching and he will make sure that they have their reward. Would you bow your head with me? Father, I thank you today for this reminder from the scriptures about the sacredness of what we do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and the rest of the week, whether it's at work or at home, whether it's in leisure, at the beginning of our careers or in retirement. Thank you for reminding us that it's all of our attitude that when we're spirit-filled, our attitude will be right. It will be an attitude of submission, an attitude of reverence, an attitude of sonship. God, I ask you to forgive me when that's not been my attitude. And I pray that you reset my attitude in that kind of a way, that you fill me with your spirit so that I will be one who submits, one who sees my work as sacred, and one who remembers that I'm a son. That my identity is in you. But I, I don't only pray that for me, I pray it for everyone here. I pray that that would be the desire of every person's heart here. That you would be Lord of their everyday lives. They would honor you so and they would rest in that. As you consider for a moment how God has spoken to you right there where you are, maybe there's something you need to trust him with. Maybe there's something you need to ask him to do in your life. Maybe you need to ask him to do an attitude reset in your heart. Ask him. Maybe there's a commitment that he's asking you to make. If the Spirit is calling you to do that, then I encourage you to say yes to him. Pray that prayer where you are. I want to invite you to stand to your feet. And I want to invite pastors, deacons, ladies to come here to the front. And I want to invite you to come and pray. Maybe you want to pray by yourself and kneel down here at the altar. Maybe you have a burden, a need, something that's breaking your heart, and you want to pray with someone else. We'd love to pray with you and encourage you. This is a time of trusting God. We don't want you to go out of this place with any burden, with any need that has not been brought to the Lord. Leave it here at the feet of Jesus. As we sing, you come.